Our passage this week comes from Paul's epistle to the Philippians, uh, chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Uh, This paragraph is the third paragraph of an extended exhortation. It's the concluding paragraph of an extended exhortation that began in chapter 1, verse 27. Uh, It's not exactly relevant to the whole, but I'm going to begin reading at that chapter 1, verse 27, uh, so that we see the flow of the argument and how it all fits together this morning. Uh, Before I read our passage, though, let's go to the Lord in prayer that he would bless the reading and preaching of his word. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning again in the name of Christ, and we come to hear your word, your word that you inspired by your Holy Spirit, your word that you gave us through the work of the Apostle Paul. And we ask, dear Lord, as we hear that word today, as it is read, that you would give your spirit afresh, that he might dwell within our hearts, that he might write these words upon our hearts, and that they might be life unto us and peace in Jesus Christ, whose name we pray. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's holy word from the epistle to the Philippians, chapter 1, verse 27, through chapter 2, verse 18. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you a salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which ye saw in me, and now here to be in me. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, and of things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. That I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain, 
Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever, and his people said, Amen. In these three paragraphs of admonition, the first paragraph we have in uh, chapter 1, verse 27 through uh, 30, I believe, and then in the first 11 verses of chapter 2, and now verses 12 through 18, Paul is pressing upon the Philippians to live as becomes the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, uh, to live as becomes followers of Jesus Christ, to live as they believe, to live as they trust. They trust in Christ, they need to live like they trust in Christ. First, that they had to maintain, not just as individuals, but as a body, that united front and constant front against adversaries in the world. Uh, This was in verse 27, verse 28, that they stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel and in nothing terrified by your adversaries. It required a certain unity, and so he moves on to that unity and what it takes for that unity within the body of Christ. That they were to uh, be, again, of one mind, of one love, of one accord, and like-minded. That they were to be humbled and avoid all strife and vainglory. That they were to go with that lowliness of mind, not a meanness or a, a pettiness, but a humility understanding their place in the world and with an idea of serving their brethren, just as Christ, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, came and served, and through that was magnified in glory, that we find our glory not in the self-aggrandizement, but in the service of Christ, serving one another. And then he bears down in our final paragraph to us, as a group, but our individual responsibilities there. That if we are going to stand fast against the world, and we are going to be united in humility under Jesus Christ, we have to be serious and are working out, are showing, living out that salvation which the Lord has worked in us. And this is the thrust of this final paragraph. That the children of God... If we are to truly be children of God, it requires, it expects, it assumes an integrity between life and our faith, our trust, our belief in the Lord God. And, and that begins with a seriousness. And we see this in verse 12 and 13. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now a great deal of harm to theology can be done when we separate those two verses and take them out of context. But even more can be done when we take out these two sentences out of the context of the larger admonition that he's giving. Uh, The hint there of his understanding is in that first part. You have always obeyed. Uh, Obey and not Paul. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying as you have always obeyed me. But as you have always obeyed the Lord, as your faith was genuinely submissive unto the Lord, not just when I was there, but when I was away, because even in the church, when the cat's away, the mice do play. I say this as one who will not be here next week, and I'm going to take what 
chance I can to zing your conscience. Um, But Paul is very pleased that their faith is evident because they don't just obey Paul when he's talking to them and when he's amongst them, but they have shown by their care and concern for him and, and the ministry of the gospel that they are committed. But we're human beings. The Philippians were human beings. And they need to be encouraged in this obedience and not take it for granted because just as soon as you take your blessing and your obedience for granted is just as soon that you're going to grow cold and lukewarm and be sped out of the mouth. And so he calls them to what they already know, what they're already doing, uh, to work out that salvation, not work their salvation, by the way, It's to work it out, to live it out, is another way we could translate it, with fear and trembling. And he goes on in the same breath. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and do of his good pleasure. He's not talking about uh, some sort of God started our salvation by grace, but we have to keep it by our good merit. He's certainly not talking about we gain our salvation by our merit. We're in the context of the grace and favor and mercy of the Lord, but that that grace and favor has a purpose. That you were redeemed not of your merits uh, from sin so that you would be free of it. And the Lord gives His good pleasure, His favor to you, that you would be shaped by that pleasure and, and favor to you. That's why He says what He says in verse 13. We see this also in Ephesians. If you look back at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through, nine, uh, 8 through 10, it says, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the work, gift of God. That's, that's the parallel to what we have. Is, it's God that works in you. Uh, that's the parallel to Jesus Christ telling Nicodemus, You can't come into the kingdom of heaven unless you are born of the Spirit. That that you are not the initiator of your salvation, that the Lord is. We love the Lord because He first loved us. That's from 1 John, but it's repeated in our hymn that we've already sung today. We're saved through faith by the grace of Jesus Christ. Not of ourselves, it is the work of God, even that faith is the work of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. There are those that say we have to do good works to be saved. But that messes up the order. We couldn't do good works in sin. We are saved in order that we do them. We are saved in order that we be holy. If God required holiness for salvation, we would of all people be the most miserable because that's exactly what we couldn't attain as sinners. And so he gives us the Lamb of God. He gives us that one unblemished sacrifice that he might not only cover our blemish, but that he might liberate us from the bondage that we had, that we might walk in his grace and in his mercy. He gives that you might be conformed and shaped by that gift. He doesn't save you from sin that you can wallow in it with impunity. That's not his purpose. That's not why Christ who in the form of God thought it not robbery to be considered equal with God, nevertheless died upon a cross. That he might leave pigs in the pigsty and only avoid them being slaughtered. 
not the point at all, but that they might live new lives. And it's incumbent upon us, if we believe that we have that new life, to live according to it, to work it out in our lives, to make sure that it is part of our character, our identity, if you want to use modern parlance. It is part of who we are and in what we do and our hopes and our fears and everything is based upon it. You are to live richly on what he has given you and not to just get nitpicky about this great banquet of grace that has been given unto you. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, uh, Paul writes, Put on therefore as the elect of God. Paul's there for just a second. Paul is writing to believers. And what is one of the great titles that they have? That they are God's elect. Now, that elect is a word that we, don't, we use it in electioneering, and it, it means our choice. But it's more than that. Uh, in the Greek, it has the connotations of the chosen loved ones. The ones that we put our favor on. Uh, it is... Uh, in the context of a, a polygamous society, it would be the wife that was not just a political match, but the heart of the husband. That's not the way it's used here, but it's similar. It's, it's a deep love from all eternity to be elect of God, even when we are sinners, is in itself profound. But there's expectation. Put therefore the elect of God, holy and beloved, Bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Uh, this is the same sort of virtues that he is pressing to the Philippians. Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so, often, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which ye also are called into one body. And be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus and give thanks to God, to God and the Father by Him. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What does that mean? It means that, that you let all that Christ has revealed and promised you and and has told you and, and done for you, give fruit and, and flourish in your life. That you look with anticipation upon the blessings that are given to you in the word of life. That the gospel becomes that mold, that image, that goal, that end, that tell us that you are looking forward to. That you are in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. My children, we are the sons of God, and we don't appear that way in the world, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, and made like Him even as He is, for we shall see Him face to face. That beatific vision, which transforms us, is our goal and our longing. And, and, and He says in the next verse, And He who has that hope within Himself purifies Himself, even as He that is the Lord God is pure. Working out your salvation means living the gospel. And making sure that what you say you believe is what you believe, and it shapes your life. Uh, 
Faith and works are not two separate things. Works are something that comes out of your faith. If you trust the Lord truly, you will do His will. If you are just trusting in the Lord because you think that's a, that's a form of life insurance against hell, and you want to live like a, a hellion in this world, well, you're going to live like you believe. You believe that God is superficial with His grace, and you will find out at the last day that that just is not the case. But you still lived out your faith. You just put your faith in the wrong place. But putting your faith in Jesus Christ will affect who you are. And, and Paul, knowing the, the, the steel power of sin, passes that upon them. They knew this. They knew that coming to the Lord Jesus is repenting from the ways of the world. It's a life of repentance as well as it a life of faith. They needed to be reminded. And if they needed to be reminded, you and I need to be reminded. He also says that we are to do this with fear and trembling. Now, there's a right fear and trembling and a wrong fear and trembling. This phrase by Paul actually doesn't mean a sort of a servile fear. Like God may or strike me down at any moment. Well, God may or may not be uh, gracious to me. No, it's not that at all. It actually assumes... That, that we have that grace that is promised to us. He uses it in Ephesians 6 of the, the service that servants owe to their masters, that they were to serve with fear and trembling and not with eye service as unto the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning that they revered and respected the work that they were given, and they weren't just serving in order to avoid uh, a, a whipping. It means a sincere service. And a recognition of the seriousness of the service. It means that you and I are called to no slight work in the gospel. That we are to be on guard against the heart of hypocrisy. If you turn to Matthew chapter 7, we get this in the words of Christ. That is pretty much this same sort of line of thinking. In the close of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew seven twenty-one. He says, Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew ye. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. The rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell. For it was founded upon a rock. Oh, excuse me, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rains descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it had no substance. It was a faith not in Christ as He has offered unto you, but a faith that, that takes the first little evasion against recognition of one's own guilt. We have to be on guard against that, a guard against that sort of hypocrisy. That the work that is put before us is perseverance in the face of the world that we got in chapter 1, 27 uh, through uh, 30. That we stand fast together against our adversaries without fear. It is, a, 
It is a, a working out of that grace that we might, uh, in self-denial, seek the good of the body of Christ Jesus, seek one another's own uh, interest without disputing, without strife, without vainglory, but looking to the glory of Christ. These are not things that our heart without grace will willingly do. But it is what is expected of the grace of God in His church. And this sort of integrity then requires a dutiful attitude. Look at verses 14 through the first part of 16. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth or holding on to the word of life. Uh, well, holding on to the word of life. There should be actually, that probably should go with the previous verse. Um, that they are, you're to act as becomes the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That's how he starts off the admonition. Only in verse chapter one twenty seven, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, saying the same thing there, that what you claim should actually be reflected in how you behave, uh, and you ought to avoid being like the church of old, ancient Israel in the wilderness, who gave herself to grumblings and disputings and questionings and and discontent in the wilderness, and what happened to her. She was consumed. A grumbling heart is like Israel there. And the modern church, if she gives herself to a grumbling and an impatience, and uh, remember that assumed in all of this is a life of struggle. The Philippian church was not a wealthy church. The Philippian church was not a church that didn't have conflict with her neighbors. The pagan world and, and even to the unbelieving Jews were an issue for them and a temptation to them. And they had to work and be uh, persevere and long-suffering in the picking up of the cross and following Christ Jesus. When Israel had a little less water than she wanted, she grumbled. When she got tired of the manna from heaven, she grumbled. Uh, all throughout the wilderness, Israel grumbled. And because of that, she stayed 40 years in the wilderness. And that generation didn't enter into the promised land. When the church gives herself to the same sort of superficial faith. She's like that seed planted amongst the stony ground. It shoots up in joy, but it has no root. And the sun comes out and the heat beats upon it and it withers and dies. It was the people of God for 40 years in the wilderness, but another generation took up the mantle. That's an awful judgment to fall upon a people that are supposed to have received such great grace. A grumbling heart will not stand firm against the world, as, as he requires us in chapter 20, in 127 and 28. It rather flacks off and goes away. If you turn to John chapter 6, uh, verses 56 and following, uh, Jesus had given the instruction about, um, uh, about the eating of His body and drinking of His blood, that we have to live off of Him. And it was a, a hard thing to understand and to perceive 
even despite the fact that he does this in the context of feeding the 5,000. And in verse 59, uh, he speaks this, that many, he taught in the synagogues in Capernaum, many therefore of his own disciples, verse 60, when they had heard these sayings, said, this is a hard saying, and who can bear it? And when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? What and if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the Spirit that quickens, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who, were, who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. This is a statement of great grace. It means that those who do come unto him, are, are, they don't just come out about their own power, which the devil might defeat and bring them back into destruction. They come in the power of the Lord God. But it also means that we are humbled and that we don't come out of our own righteousness, but that it is God's graciousness. And because of that, verse 66, we get this very disappointing line from that time forth. Many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. A grumbling heart says to the Lord, I will be your people on my terms. And when you are not behaving the way I think you ought to behave, I am going to grumble and complain. This is different than, say, Job, who didn't understand why the Lord was working. But instead of grumbling and blaming him as his friends, well, as his wife wanted him to do, uh, instead of giving up hope and, and acquiescing to the, to the opinion of his, his friends, he persevered. He knew his only answer was the Lord God. That's not the same as grumbling. David in the Psalms, when he is distressed and distraught and undone, he doesn't seek somewhere else and grumbles against the Lord's justice. He lays his case right down back to the Lord. That's faith. Christ upon the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Doesn't forsake the Lord in return, but says, into thy hand I commit my spirit. Even when we receive the hard providence of the Lord, we still know that our good is with Him. That's trust and faith. But if you have a grumbling and discontented heart, you will fail of that. You never were a part of it. If you are worried about your own comfort in the world, then you're not going to deny yourself before the Lord and you will not seek the good of your neighbor when it conflicts with your good. If you're not working out your salvation with fear and trembling, then none of these other gifts and, and duties and virtues that are part of our faith will belong to you and you will show that whatever you claim about your faith, it's not where you think it's laid. As Christ humbled Himself and was exalted to the glory of the Father, verse 11. So you are to be in this world one that takes those duties that are put before you with a dutiful heart, knowing that you are that light bearer in the world, that you are a lamp. Now, the word here that you shine as lights in the world, that you shine as, as really as, as lanterns, as, as that which contains the light. 
and you hold it forth or you hold it fast. And that should be your great work. Uh, As Jesus, early on in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16, ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid, neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, and not glorify you. They're not going to see your self-righteousness if you're truly holding on to the gospel, because you don't have any. They see your true works, and they glorify your Father, which is in heaven. This is the same as what Paul is saying. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who both wills and does in you to do of his good pleasure. But Paul doesn't just press these duties. He gives us encouragement to them. A first encouragement we get in the latter part of our paragraph, the latter part of verse 16 through 18. Uh, he, he says, That I may rejoice in the day of Christ, because you are doing these things. Uh, that I have not run in vain, either labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with y'all. For the same cause also do ye joy. That's a command. You also take this joy and rejoice with me. This integrity becomes a cause of joy. It becomes what it becomes. It becomes an, a token, a, a piece of evidence, a sign of the future. Remember what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 6. He says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it into the day of Jesus Christ. When the work is the Lord's work, then we know he won't get bored. The Lord doesn't get bored. We know he will not change his mind, because the Lord is not a man that he should repent. We know that if the Lord knew who we were and started this work, then there's nothing He will discover about us that will cause Him to change His mind about this work, and He will do what He has done. And so if we see, in the midst of long-suffering and this working out, uh, that we are bearing this not with grumbling, uh, but we are joyfully searching despite the cost to see our brother's interest to find that true unity of truth and love in the gospel of Christ in this church and in facing the trials and sometimes even the, the very petty little evils that we find in the world. Despite what it costs us, we will find that these costs are actually tokens of grace. And they assure us and encourage us and cause us to rejoice. Note how Paul looks upon their faith. It is a sacrifice and service of their faith. That to bear these hardships, to bear this cross, even though there's nothing we can do to improve the Lord's situation, there's no way that we can serve the Lord in the sense of making His life better, we nevertheless offer an acceptable worship to Him. That's what the the language is. Uh, when we uh, find and go through these trials with faith, with constancy, with humility. And then, for the final encouragement, he does, just as he opened the paragraph, the energy for this work, the ability, the power to do this work is right at hand. It's not within ourselves and where it can fail. It's not far off that requires a great deal of effort and questing. It is God that works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. It is still, all of this is still a work not of your 
effort and not of your merit, but of God's grace and His merit in you. And therefore, all you need for the struggle is prayer. He's not far off. He's not where He can't be found. If you are struggling, if you are giving to the temptation of grumbling and disputing and and, and, and chafing under the suffering. If you are finding it hard to humble yourself and as Christ uh, denies Himself, in, not in a, in a lowly way, but in a way to take up a greater glory, if you are finding that the world's temptations against you are just too much and you don't want to fight it anymore, there's a solution right at hand. Prayer. And Christ has promised, if you believe Christ, if you pray anything and according to the will of the Lord, He will give you what you ask for. We've already been told that He gives us His good pleasure that we might do His good pleasure. So of all the things that we can pray to the Lord about, we know when we are praying for holiness and righteousness and the power to resist sin, that He will answer it. You have that power. And it's right at hand. As you pray, so are you equipped to persevere in this world and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And as you neglect prayer, so you find yourself devoid of that power, of that energy, and of that grace to live out that to which all His people are called. Let's pray. Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Jesus Christ. And we know, dear Lord, that though we believe, we have yet that unbelief in us. And we ask, as, as that disciple so long ago asked, that you would help our unbelief. That you would lift us up and plant us firmly upon the rock that is Christ Jesus. That we would stand whatever weather or storm. That we would stand against our own self-righteousness and presumption that we would stand against the base temptations of the world, that we would stand true to you and true to one another, that your grace might flourish in us, that those talents that you give us, that those graces that you give us might multiply and flourish and overflow to the good of your church, to the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. No, he doesn't need.